In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what triggers customers to buy so that you can sell more stuff. From Engagement, I'm David Millay, and this is Flip the Switch. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the principles that have helped guide them to success throughout their careers? Then we take all of those insights and we apply them to the world of sports and entertainment. Now, in today's episode, we are sitting down with Caitlin Burgoyne, who runs a company called Customer Camp. Now, when we sat down to talk with Caitlin, one of the main reasons that we did that is because of her focus on people. There's a tagline on her website, customercamp.co, that says, the world's best marketers don't know more about the latest tool or tactic. They know more about people. And ultimately, when we think about Caitlin's expertise, it is really about understanding what triggers customers to buy from a psychology perspective, what is going to get them to actually add that ticket into their cart and check out and not just leave it abandoned there. Um, So she has a number of different tools on her websites from cheat sheets to courses, to workshops, to uh, keynote speaking, if you want. Um, But she is constantly putting out tons of great content out into the internet, whether that is for purchase behind a paywall or whether that's just out on Twitter. Uh, She is an incredible thought leader when it comes to understanding what gets customers to buy. And in all of your businesses today, I imagine that is something that you are heavily focused on. And again, it's not about a fancy website. It's not about a flashy jumbotron that is going to get people to buy. It's understanding the motivations, goals, needs, stereotypes, and emotions of your customer. And if you can deeply understand what is going to trigger them to buy, you're going to be successful. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Caitlin Burgoyne. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am super excited to get into so many different topics here around customer psychology, their why they buy, what's going on in their head through this process, and really understanding your customer deeper. But you just launched a new product. Can you tell us about this new product that just came out and got is uh, now available for purchase? But by the time yeah. that we hear this, it might not be. But tell us a little bit about it. It will be available for purchase. It won't be on sale like it is right now. But what it is, is one of the things that I did not know about until I would say the last couple of years is that there's all of these hidden golden nuggets just out there waiting for us marketers to find them. And they're not in the place where people tend to look. They're actually hidden in online reviews from real buyers. And so this is something that conversion copywriters, they've been using this method of review mining, as they call it, for a long time. And they say, you know, Joanna Weeb, she's one of the world's best conversion copywriters. She says, I don't write high converting copy. I steal it. And I steal it from the words of our happiest customers. And so this is a system that you can use to basically really systematize the process of review mining and to ensure that you're finding the right stuff, that you know what you should be looking for, that you know how to kind of extract the good stuff, that you can do it all really quickly. And most importantly for marketers like us, that you can then present it back to your team or your clients and 
show them what you've found to get them as excited as you are and bought into your ideas. So I put together the golden nugget review mining system essentially to, you know, take on all the guesswork and make it really easy for people to go in and get those golden nuggets. So it is really interesting. I think this is in the sports world, something that is really overlooked and that is the power of copy. I think so often we like, we'll put a highlight reel together from the season before and be like, go get your season ticket now. And the, the copy could really use overhaul. And if there isn't a customer review page for a product, like when we think more about like experiences, how do you go about writing conversion copy or taking customer reviews? If there isn't like a place to give a review on a product, how do you, how would you go about what, what advice would you give to an organization for that? So there's lots of ways to do it, even if you don't have what you would call typical reviews. So in the case of sports teams or perhaps like entertainment organizations, what you can do is called social listing. So that's like a sexy term for essentially seeing what people are saying about you on the Internet. And so you can go into maybe you have a fan page and you can read the comments on that fan page and the conversations that happening between fans. Maybe people are talking about you on Twitter. There are some really great tools that can actually allow you to monitor social media and see what people are saying. And a lot of teams, you know, if they've heard of this, they're thinking that they should be doing it for kind of like brand management and making sure people aren't saying bad things about them or being able to respond to like customer complaints or fan complaints. But that's not the only use case, right? You could also be using social listening to listen in on what your biggest fans or your biggest critics are saying. So you can use that to inspire copy, marketing ideas, all sorts of stuff. So even if you don't have reviews to mine, we do talk about how to use social listing. We introduce a few tools that you can use to kind of get some of that insight from your customers. I love it. And this is just one product that you've had at Customer Camp. I know you have a ton of others. I mean, tell us a little bit about Customer Camp and, and all the different offerings that you guys have. Because I know for us at Engagement, we love your blog, but that's just one component of Customer Camp. And, and we'll get into some of the, the concepts and things that you've talked about recently. But give us a little background on Customer Camp and, and what you offer. Sure. So I like to say, you know, people, if you ask people what we do, people might say, oh, they do, you know, customer research or market research um, or, you know, Caitlin specializes in buyer psychology. Really, what I how we think of it is that we help people figure out why their customers buy so they can market smarter. And the way that we do that is through workshops where we teach people specific methods to go out and learn about their customers, learn from their customers using interviews or review mining like we've just talked about. Um, But we also write a newsletter that's really popular called Why We Buy. And in that, we actually get into kind of like the behavioral science behind why people make decisions and how we act and all of these kind of cognitive biases, as they're called in the nerdy (laughs) um, behavioral science world. But essentially, these different ways that our brains work and how that drives decision making. So really, as a business, what I recognized, you know, early in my career when I had my first marketing agency and then later when I started my own tech company is that. The biggest challenge that we have as um, creators, as innovators, as marketing leaders is to really understand our customers and understand what they want from us. And the way that teams do that, um, oftentimes it's not in alignment with what customers want. And indifference kills way more businesses than the competition. So it's really important to understand buyers. And at Customer Camp, we help people do that. Yeah. And and indifference being the main thing that kills organizations, something that we talk about all the time, where I think in the past, sports teams have really tried to market to everybody. 
And for us, we're constantly like, that's the biggest mistake you can make. Like take a target audience and really try to make them raving, passionate fans and, and almost ignore everybody else, right? Because they'll go and spread and evangelize for you. But if you're just trying to please everybody, like you're not going to win. And in order to go get, go ahead, go ahead. Because that's so true, right? Like, because like today, especially when you think about the way you find out about things, it's often through your enthusiastic friends who already like the thing, right? And so many organizations and, and companies, they're kind of afraid to go narrow in their focus because they think going narrow will mean that they'll miss out on, a, on a potential customers. But in fact, what ends up happening is those big, braving fans, they help you to, to reach a wider audience because they're such big advocates that they, they're enthusiastic. Their enthusiasm becomes a bit contagious. And so I totally agree with you around this, you know, focusing in on those hardcore fans. Well, I'm really excited for this episode because I think we are going to um, debunk, if you will, a bunch of traditional tactics in the marketing space that I think you have a little bit of different take on, like whether it be customer journey maps or customer per personas, things that admittedly we've used at engagement with our clients. So I want to hear your your different take on some of these things. But why don't we start with kind of this alarm clock story that you have? Yeah. And your personal experience buying an alarm clock to really demonstrate that brands don't know why customers buy. Well, what I'll say is that I also have used customer journey maps and personas <laughs> like, you know, and I still use personas in my business and I still think a lot about the customer journey, but I've just changed the focus of that journey from thinking about all the interactions that a person might have with our brand to thinking far beyond our brand. Because at the end of the day, their journey doesn't begin and end with us. It usually begins long before they are introduced to your brand or before they get enthusiastic about it, before they become a customer. And then there's other things that they might consider and try and love and buy before they find you. So the example you asked for is my alarm clock story. So I shared this great kind of video where I talk about my journey to buy an alarm clock. And how I ended up buying kind of like what I would call a dumb alarm clock or an old okay. school alarm clock. And I share in it what was going on in my life, kind of the trigger event that led me to seek out a new alarm clock. And that is that I had, you know, it was New Year's. I'd made a resolution to try to lose some weight. I wanted to wake up earlier and work out in the morning. And so I started my New Year's resolution like many of us do. And within the first like 10 days, I was hitting snooze on my cell phone that was sitting beside my bed and I wasn't waking up that 90 minutes earlier. And so I was like, I need to find a better solution than my cell phone. I'm staying up all night, kind of like cruising on Twitter. And so the first thing I tried to do was taking Twitter off my phone. Didn't work because guess what? You can just log in through the browser. <laughs> so the next thing I did thinking I was smart was I actually downloaded this app that allows you to turn off your snooze button. But instead of using the app, what I would do in the morning is I would delete the app. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> then still press new. So, like, you know, you're fighting against yourself, but yourself can sometimes be your own worst enemy. So I was like, all right, having my phone in the bedroom is not going to work. I looked at some other solutions. I found this really cool alarm clock rug that actually forces you out of bed. You have to stand on it for 30 seconds before it will stop going off. And I was like... That's going to help me with my goal, right? It will literally force me out of bed when I'm tempted to sleep in. But it was $120. And I'm like, mm -hmm. a lot of money to drop for an alarm clock. I thought about using the alarm clock that I had um, from the past, you know, before where we all had smartphones. I dug that out and set it up. 
big old snooze button again. <laughs> so all of these different solutions I considered, I even thought about maybe hiring a trainer to come to my house. So it was like, if there's Just somebody like standing at the door. the door, exactly banging at the door, I'm not going to sleep in. And again, expensive. Ultimately, what I ended up buying was this dumb alarm clock. I found it on Amazon. It was one of those, they called it twin bell alarm clock is the technical name for it, but it has no snooze button. It's really loud. I was able to set it up on the other side of my bedroom. So when it went off, I literally had to get out of bed to go turn it off. And resetting it would have been kind of like a bit of a bit, just enough kind of like mental activity that it was like, by the time I was done, I was like, I really should get up now. I'm like out of bed. I'm over here. I'm like trying to get like, what's this extra 10 minutes going to do? So that was kind of my solution. And ultimately there was all of this stuff going on within my journey. You know, I didn't just want to wake up earlier. I wanted to be this better version of myself, right? The kind of person who quit hitting snooze on their life goals right. and actually got up earlier so I could achieve the things I wanted to achieve. And so in that story, the reason I share those details is because if you're in the business of trying to sell twin bell alarm clocks, you could try to get in front of people who are looking for one, right? And if you do a search in, you know, using a um, SEO tool, you'll see that it's very difficult to try to uh, get ranked for the words twin bell alarm clock. Very expensive to get ranked for the words twin bell alarm clock. But if you think about what I'm actually trying to achieve, which is how to wake up earlier, actually really easy to rank for that and not expensive to pay for ads to drive traffic to that. So as you start thinking about your customer's journey and what they're really trying to achieve with your products beyond kind of the obvious, you can then recognize kind of less obvious opportunities that other people and especially your competitors may not be paying attention to yet. So what I hear you saying there too is like not only is digging into the customer psychology more effective for driving active, it actually might be more cost efficient as well because everyone else is going down one lane. And if you go down the other lane, you can stand out a little bit better and for cheaper. And get in front of people earlier and build their trust. And I know with the type of um with the type of customers that you tend to serve, like they're probably a lot of people are probably generally aware of their existence, right? It's not like they're branding. Sure. They're they're probably quite active in their communities. People just people know that they exist. But you want people to have a positive affinity with your brand. And before you get them to tr- like you know to move into that kind of like customer mode, oftentimes they need to know about you, they need to like you, and they need to trust you. And I think a lot of brands miss the opportunity to get liked and trusted, and they really focus on just being known. And you need to think about the like and trust as well. And again, understanding the buyer journey, it allows you to get in front of people sooner, help them solve kind of relevant problems that they're having that relate to your solutions. And then when they are ready to buy, you're top of mind. Okay, random question here, because I I understand like knowing and liking, and I think sports teams do a great job of this. One thing that would be interesting to me is like for a new customer, for an experience, right? Like going to a sports game as a sports team. How do you build up trust with a customer before purchase, right? I think that we've explored on the show like a ton of ways to build up trust once you have a customer. Something goes wrong, right? The way you serve it, the way you recover that huge trust builder. But before purchase, what are some ways that you recommend maybe for an experience, right? Where again, we don't have customer reviews per se traditionally. What are some ways to build up some trust? Well, I would say that context is king, which is something I say all the time, right? Context is king. And a mentor of mine, he says, 
context is important, but also contrast, right? Like we don't know what we think until we have something to compare it to. So yeah. what I would say is that in the case of the type of um, organization that you work with, right? People aren't necessarily out there searching for things like how to have more fun, right? Like that's not right. necessarily right. the type of things that they're searching for. So you're probably not going to, but they're thinking about it. And what are they doing when they're thinking about it, right? They're probably scrolling through social media, seeing all of their friends who seem to be living these much better, more fun lives than they are. And they're doing the whole thing that we all do, which is the comparison trap where you're like, maybe if I was doing more things like that, I would be happy like them, right? So it's mm -hmm. like when you think about kind of like what they're, what's happening internally with them, which is they're probably seeking some type of thrill. They're seeking some joy. Maybe they want to connect with, you know, their partner or their children that they're feeling a bit disconnected from. Maybe they are feeling like, you know, they're, they're, they're getting out of like a slump that they've been in and they're trying to force themselves to, to get back into their groove and feeling like they're having a great time. Like when you think about kind of like what's happening with people internally that might push them, to have a new experience, then think about where they're consuming information related to that. So mm -hmm. in the case of a lot of experiences, it's going to be hearing about it and seeing about it from other people that are already participating, not rocket science, right? Like th that's where it's happening and where that's happening is on social media. Um, it's on, it's watching their friends and seeing what their friends are doing. So like that's where you build a lot of that trust because you can basically piggyback on the people that they already trust, which is, again, their friends and family. Right. Yeah. So focusing on the people who who influence the people you want to influence. And it's not always as cut and dry. You know, if we're talking about a B2B software company, there's probably tons of things that they can do that are very different than thinking about how do you get show up in the places where people yeah. are are thinking about your solution. When I think about this as like we apply it into actual strategies and tactics for a sports team, right? For me, what comes to mind is one, creating more Instagrammable moments at your venues and in the experiences that you offer Absolutely. so that yeah. people can take a picture of it and share it. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, and this is something that we've talked about many a time as well, is too many like sports and entertainment teams focus on the talent. And not mm -hmm. enough on the customers or the attendees, right? So, like, yeah. if you scroll if you scroll through an NBA, an NBA team social feed, it's going to be yeah. a lot about the players, mm -hmm. but rarely are you going to see them retweeting or repushing out UGC yeah. or or fans enjoying their game, right? Yeah, but that's the stuff that fans want to see when they're making a oh decision to buy. And when you think about the people who did this really well from a brand perspective, there are I'm sure that they have people like managing their um, accounts, but there are. They're not necessarily in the same world, but like looking at the Kardashians, for example, right? Like they're always interacting with their fans on social. Now, it's not actually probably Kim. She's probably not sitting there being like, oh, clever, you know, think Brittany. That was really funny. Like, no, but like they're always interacting in the sense of giving their fans a glimpse into being part of it and also feeling like they got to interact with the person that they're looking up to. When you think about a sports team, for instance, they have a whole roster of amazing human beings who like fans love. And if those if those people were interacting with them in any capacity, they're going to freak out and get so excited, right? For like sure. when if somebody were to even just like one of their posts when they posted the picture of them at the game and they saw that like LeBron James, for instance, right? I'm not I'm not super sports knowledgeable, so but let's say LeBron James, you know, if, if he were to comment and say, you know, thanks for coming or something, that would blow people's minds, right? No but doubt. the other thing is if 
I don't even know what team he plays for, but let's just say, like you said, around their social feeds, if the feed isn't just full of like, you know, the plays of the week and things like that, but you're actually seeing, you know, the kiss cam or like somebody who's dressed head to toe in a crazy outfit and like that stuff is showing up as well. Then the fans have a chance to picture themselves in the stadium and think about, oh, that could be me having that amazing time. Like, look at that, you know, mom with her hand over her son's shoulder. Or look at that, those crazy best friends who are like painted head to toe and like shirtless and like chugging beer. Like, that could be me. And like, so showing the fans as part of the experience more and celebrating them as being part of the experience. Because without them, the experience doesn't doesn't need to exist right like they they are the reason it exists well let's jump in when we think about the customer being the reason that these organizations exist around customer journey maps right Mm -hmm. so you've got a slightly different view on the traditional customer journey map Mm -hmm. um what are we missing from that traditional customer journey map to how you've kind of pivoted and started using journeys so the thing again that i'm really focused on is like what happens before they find you and what happens when this is, it's, it may not be as relevant to your audience, but let's just say, for instance, we're talking about my alarm clock example, right? Okay. If you're the alarm clock company and all you're thinking about is, okay, so they found us through our, you know, search engine ad and they clicked on our website and they came here and then they went to this product page and then they signed up for our newsletter. And then like, you're thinking about it all from like your very, very narrow point of view around like my interactions with your brand. You're missing all this other really good stuff that's going on. Like why I started looking for an alarm clock in the first place or what else I considered. And again, that gives you the opportunity, get in front of me sooner, more relevant messages, more creative things. But from From the types of companies that you work with, again, around context is king. What I would say is that for them, the customer journey map is thinking about what's happening in your customers' lives that is going to trigger them to want to go to a game, for instance, or to want to go to a show. So maybe it's graduation, right? And they're going, giving somebody a reason to celebrate. You got good report cards, so you're going to get to sell, like to go and celebrate. So instead of showing an ad around the time where, you know, school-aged kids are getting report cards that says something around, you know, such and such players on a hot streak show a picture of a mom sitting there with like, you know, her son or a dad with his daughter and say, you know, good report card, like give them the reward they really want or something. So trigger them to think, oh, you know, they did get a good report card and this would be a fun way for me to celebrate with them. So think about what's happening in their lives. Maybe it's a, a, you know, around the holiday is like, that's an obvious one where people are like thinking about gifting season passes as a holiday gift. But what are the other occasions gift. where some, it is a great gift, right? But what are the other occasions where, um, where you can take advantage of that? Also thinking really, you know, really clever from a social media perspective, look at the weather and see what's happening. You know, this Thursday when you have a game happening indoors, is it supposed to rain? Talk about that. Be like, it's going to rain. <laughs> you know, cups stay yeah. dry and warm and courtside. Think about the things that are actually happening in your customers' lives that aren't necessarily just about you and then how your brand can fit in to those moments. I love it. And the the word that you always and have been using a bunch so far has been this trigger word, right? So I think it's like, what are the triggers outside of that moment? And then how do we tap into that? Um, well, when we think about 
like searching for a solution for a product, you, you talked about a little bit how it's different for an experience. Um, but are there certain types of triggers, like frameworks for thinking about triggers? Like, do you have certain categories for types of triggers that people can think about mm. to maybe think a little bit more creatively? Yes. So there are kind of like four different categories that they fall into. So there are like emotional triggers, right? Like I'm having a bad, like I'm feeling down. Like when might people be feeling down, right? Maybe when uh, they're coming out of the winter and it's been long and cold and miserable and they're just looking for something to brighten up their day, right? Um, so there's emotional triggers. There's situational triggers, so things that happen to you. So for instance, like, you know, if you're at, um, let's just say you're at a game, right? And you're thirsty, that's a trigger no, that's actually a biological trigger. Thirst is a biological one. But like situational triggers might be something like, you know, your dishwasher breaks and you need to get a new one, right? So that's a situational trigger. So there's emotional, situational, and then there's social. So somebody says something, again, going back to that, I saw it on Instagram or somebody asked me a question around like, you know, well, maybe, you know, like maybe what sports do you like? And you're like, oh, I don't really like any, but maybe I should try to get into it because this girl that I like seems to be really into this tea, right? And so maybe I should pretend to like the team too. So there's these different triggers that can happen. Um, but the situational ones tend to be the ones from a marketing perspective that mm. can be really like kind of easy to spot once you think about them. Again, like the report card example, like it's like, okay, like we know that this is around the time that report cards are coming in. Like how do we do some advertising right now targeting parents talking about that trigger? or what might be another great one? Um, Valentine's, right? Like that's another obvious one. But like, you know, if you are looking for a gift to give to your partner and you know they're a huge fan, taking them to a game. But then you can create kind of like an experience too. Like maybe if you think about Valentine's as an opportunity, it's like, well, how do we kind of create an experience around that trigger event? Like, let's just not have them be able to buy tickets for the game let's be able to serve them like a sexy meal courtside like let's create a package specifically for valentine's right and so when you think about these triggers it kind of allows you to think broader about like how might we get people excited but then also how might we shape an offer to fit that trigger i love it all right so let, let's get back a little bit to customer journey maps so one of the ways that we've traditionally used journey maps is to really identify where friction points are Mm -hmm. So that we can then create solutions. Um, because I think a lot of times, like you get into this staple of like the machine works, right? Every year we do the game and it goes and, and you can really get complacent unless you're in our mind going through a journey map and identifying friction points or areas that we can plus up. Um, are there other tools outside of like a standard customer journey map that you've seen companies use to identify these friction points and really make a more seamless customer experience? Well, I mean, I think when you're talking about friction points, one of the best ways to identify them, especially in the, you know, in the context of your client situation is to use um, secret shoppers, right? Like have somebody go through the whole process of first they go to your website and they're trying to figure out how to buy tickets and then they actually show up and like, are they able to get a locker? Like all these different points of moments and the people who are the best at this in the world are Disney, right? Disney, there's oh, yeah. no... Gar There's no Disney theme park where you have to be 20 feet between a garbage can because the last thing you're supposed to be doing while you're on holiday having a magical experience is searching for a garbage can. So they've thought through every single moment and 
designed the experience with that customer in mind, right? Like thinking about how do we get rid of the frictions, like the smart bands, all of these different things mm-hmm. that they So a lot of brands can take can take from kind of those examples and think like, wow, how can we build our customer experience that from the first kind of thought, oh, maybe I should, you know, maybe I should get tickets for this. Maybe I should go to this thing right through to them actually walking out afterwards going like, oh my God, that was amazing. Like, how do you build that whole experience from beginning to end to be one that is worth it and really memorable? On the the episode before yours, we just had Jesse Cole. Uh, Do you know Jesse? He's the owner of Savannah Bananas. Do you know that? No, I don't. I think I know Savannah Bananas. I feel like I've heard of them. They're like a very, very minor league baseball team, but they've got a 50,000 person wait list. They've got more wow. followers. They've got more followers on TikTok than every MLB team and NFL team. Amazing. Um, and that's one of the things that they do is they secret shop every game. So we just talked mm-hmm. about that a little bit. And then also a slight background. I don't think, I don't know if you knew this, but I worked for Disney for six years at Disney Institute. Okay. So you so know the inside track, right? Exactly. You know how, how seriously they take this stuff. This is the stuff that we consulted companies on for a long time. And we've had so many Disney people on the show, but, um, well, let's, now we've talked a little bit about journey maps and friction points. Let's talk a little bit about understanding customers a little bit better. You've got something that is called a a clarity call cheat sheet, uh, that you guys offer, offer at customer camp to really help organizations understand who customers are and what they want. One thing I think that's difficult for sports and entertainment organizations are that they've got so many different points of sale, if you will. So let's say Cleveland Browns, right? Mm-hmm. You might you might buy a piece of merchandise from a store in Canada and like that information may or may not be getting back to the team. But mm-hmm. they also could have somebody buying season tickets online, but they could be ha- – there's so many different points of sale that I think for a lot of these sports teams, it's difficult to understand who their customers are. So maybe mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about what the Clarity Call Cheat Sheets are and mm-hmm. how they might be able to help. Sure. So the Clarity Call Cheat Sheets, essentially a Clarity Call is, it's a discovery call. A discovery call of the customer to understand why they bought and to understand what their experience is like with your brand. And the... Interesting thing about, you know, the the use case that your clients might have is that you have to really tie the project to a business outcome. So like, what are you trying to move, right? Like, are you trying to move merch sales? Are you trying to move, um, make the online purchase experience less friction? Are you trying to get more people who are occasional um, fans to become like super hardcore fans? So once you know kind of like what it is you're trying to move, then you decide who you're going to talk to, right? So you want to find probably people who represent the type of customer that you'd like to have more of. So let's say that you're, you know, the metric you're trying to move is merch sales. Who do, You're going to be able to look at your e-com store and you're going to be able to see who your whales are, right? People who spend a lot of money. And then you're able to see who the people are who spend kind of like consistently, maybe not quite as much. They probably don't have like, my husband calls it man land, where there's an entire wall of Cleveland brands merchandise. They may not have that, but they've got, you know, five or six jerseys. They get a new one every year. You can identify who these different people are who fit these personas of who you want more of. And then you can schedule calls with them. And you essentially want to understand their buying behavior, what, you know, how they find you, how they choose to buy from you versus somebody else. In the case of some sports teams, they may not have a lot of options, but I mean, they probably have different outlets that they can buy from you if they're all coming from the same source. And 
ultimately, like the goal of these calls is the better that you understand these people, the more empathy you have, you can come up with and design solutions that are just going to be really, really interesting. So a brand example that I like, which is probably somewhat relevant to to the companies listening, is Ikea. So Ikea, mm. a very experiential furniture store, right? Like it doesn't look like other furniture stores. And that is very much by design. And it doesn't operate like other furniture stores because you take it home with you in boxes and have to put it together yourself. That's not always the case. You know, before Wayfair became a huge thing, that wasn't the common way that you bought furniture. And what we, um, something that Ikea did that's interesting is thinking through their whole customer experience. They bought a company called TaskRabbit. And TaskRabbit is a company that you can hire to run tasks for you. They can go get dog food. They can pick up your prescription at the drugstore. Guess what a lot of people were hiring TaskRabbits to do for them? That's so interesting. Put Building together furniture. Ikea furniture. Yeah. Exactly. So Ikea, a furniture store, buys TaskRabbit, which is kind of like considered like a um, two-sided marketplace startup. And the world of business was like, what the F? But if you think about it from the customer experience, Ikea understands the jobs their customers are trying to get done. They want to furnish their apartment today. They want to do it affordably. They're busy. They've just moved into a new city. They don't have time to spend two days putting together furniture. They need to show up at their office the next day, right? And so what do they do? They call TaskRabbit. And so Ikea can integrate TaskRabbit into their customer experience and create that seamless experience for customers, the ones that want to take advantage of it. They probably wouldn't have learned something like that unless an IKEA team member or, you know, doing customer discovery okay. talked to these customers and said, like, tell me what your experience is. So, like, you know, everything was great, but like, then I got home and I had to freaking put this stuff together. Thank God I called TaskRabbit and somebody showed up and was able to do it for me because like, I thought it was going to take 10 minutes and it took 10 hours. So like, if you don't talk to your customers, you miss out on opportunities like that. And you miss out on ways to really continue to kind of like differentiate yourself yeah. from competitors and be and be somebody's favorite brand. It's really interesting too. like, I, I, I don't think it takes an executive doing that to, to have the magic happen. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. Like, so again, working at Disney, this is one of my favorite stories of like, really, to your point listening to your customers was we had um if you've ever been to and, and this will actually maybe resonate with you uh, have you ever been to dip epcot at disney in orlando have you ever been to that park no no i was at the one in um in california okay so down in orlando there's a park called epcot and all around like all around the place there are different countries um <laughs> so right next to the canada pavilion there's the uk pavilion and there's a little fish and chips store uh, and when, I don't know, a number of years ago, uh, what a new leader came in and said, he's like, Hey, what are our customers saying? Basically, uh, and he said, what are we saying no to our customers on? Right. Mm -hmm. And the thing that they were saying no to most was, can I get fish and chips to go? Mm -hmm. And so they're like, well, how many people are saying that? Oh, I don't know. Well, okay. On a piece of paper this week, write down how many people, how many people are asking for fish and chips. And like in a week, it was like hundreds of people were asking oh for it. Goodness. So wow. they're like, they're like, all right, well, let's experiment, take a small bet, and let's put a fish and chip portable mobile stand out for a week and see how it does. And mm -hmm. it just crushed it. Mm -hmm. And so they took that small bet, leveraged it, and then now eventually it's a, it does millions of dollars worth of revenue. It's a full permanent stand, only sells fish and chips. But it awesome. wouldn't have come. It wouldn't have come if they weren't didn't have 
employees on the front line talking to the customers. Um, to your exact it. point on the clarity call cheat sheets. So a mentor of mine is Bob Mesta and Bob is an incredible, um, innovation dude. Like he's the reason Snickers tastes the way it tastes in your mouth, like the mm. way that it masticates and like this whole, you know, you're not you when you're hungry. Like a lot of that was inspired by work that Bob did, but incredible. Bob, um, there's a really great video on a concept known as jobs to be done. And mm -hmm. I'll, I can talk a little bit about jobs to be done, yeah, but it's so like Clayton Christensen and he's talking about why people buy milkshakes. And he says that one of our colleagues went into a McDonald's. He doesn't, he doesn't say that it's a McDonald's, but it's clearly a McDonald's and realized that most of the people that were buying milkshakes, you know, a third of them were buying them before 8 a.m. in the morning. And it was the only thing they bought and they walked off with it and took it in their car. And so he sat down and he talked to these people, you know, he organized an interview. And what he learned was that all of those people had the same job to do. And that was that they had a long and boring drive to work and they needed something to do to keep their job to the drive interesting. And a milkshake was just perfect for that job because it sat right there in your cup holder. It kept you full until lunchtime. They obviously weren't health nuts. Um, and so compared to other solutions that they tried, you know, a coffee, a banana, a bagel, where you're trying to drive and steer and these things were gone really quickly. And they had this really long drive. They wanted something that would really, they could take for a while, right? Like it takes a long time to suck that thick milkshake up to that tiny straw. And so to your point around this fish and chip stand doing millions of dollars, that study was one of the early signals that moved McDonald's into breakfast, right? McDonald's mm. was doing breakfast. And now look at how big their breakfast business is. It's That's massive. huge. That's the only reason I go to McDonald's. Yeah. Like I won't eat other meals, but I'll, yeah. I'll definitely splurge on McDonald's breakfast, especially at the I airport. Guess what a chocolate frappuccino is? It's a morning acceptable milkshake. But Good point. You follow Good the point. and suddenly you're allowed to have a milkshake in the morning and feel no guilt about it, right? So these are the types of things that if they wouldn't have actually looked at, you know, this was uh, probably like a 20 year ago study. But if they were looking at the sales data, they might have noticed that all these sales were happening in the morning and been weirded out by it, but they would have no idea why. And then when you sit down and you actually talk to people, it gives you this instinct of, oh, my goodness, well, we need drive throughs because these people don't want to have to come in and get out of their car and like to get a milkshake. And we need to have morning acceptable products that are, you know, deliver the same benefits of this really long thing you can savor without the stigma <laughs> of a milkshake. And so, so much can come from these conversations, but most organizations aren't doing them. And it's a shame because the ones that do, there's a study by CoSchedule and they yeah. looked at, they surveyed thousands of marketers and they asked them, how often are you doing customer research? And most people said seldom. 65% of people said seldom. The 35% that was doing it regularly were seeing were three times more likely to hit their marketing goals than the others. So wow. it's just like insanely powerful stuff that not many people are doing. And it, again, this doesn't necessarily need to be about like a really in-depth survey. A lot of times it could just be taking a clarity call cheat sheet and picking up the phone and calling these people and nice. talking to them and getting antidotes. I mean, again, this is fresh in my mind because we just did this last podcast with Jesse. I asked him, you know, how are you getting these customer insights? He's like, do we look like a sophisticated organization? He's like, I wear a yellow tuxedo. Um, but, he was <laughs> like, but it's even like things like taking snapshots of like on your phone of when fans are leaving the game. Yeah. Sure, they might tell you one thing, but like let's dig in and actually see when are people leaving. And that's yeah. talking to your customers. That's understanding your totally. customers. So 
But I think he's a particular mindset because Jesse sounds like he's somebody that has this mindset. But I think there are certain leaders who are, you know, they're doing well enough and they could sit back on their laurels and they're like, I've got more important things to do than show up at the game and see what time people are leaving. Had McDonald's felt that way, had they not hired this organization to do this work for them, how much money would have they left on the table by not getting fresh? And so... I think that oftentimes people who are the decision makers, um, they they just don't see this as particularly relevant. Um, they think that they've got enough data from other sources that they don't need these kind of like anecdotes. But again, a, a quote that I love to say is Jeff Bezos says it when the anecdote and the data disagree, there's something wrong with the way you're measuring it. Like the anecdote is usually right. And there's something wrong with the way you're measuring it. And so I think a lot more leaders could really do disruptive, exciting things if they were to spend a bit more time really, really understanding their buyers. I love it. Well, we don't have that much time left, um, but I I do want to dig into this understanding the buyers a little bit more. Um, Obviously, I I think a lot of marketers are evolving their concept of what consists of a a customer persona. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what we see in the sports world, that customer persona tends to be based on buying history, but not necessarily interests or motivations or goals. I think, so I think sometimes that when we work with teams, that's one of the things that we do is we're like, you got to broaden that from just buying history to how are they engaging with your brand? What are the goals and motivations? From your perspective, what are some tools or frameworks you utilize to really better understand what categorize kind of niche segments of customers Mm -hmm. or potential buyers? Again, so I'll, I'll bring up jobs to be done. So the idea of jobs to be done is like people don't buy products and services because of who they are, right? They buy them because they have particular jobs they're trying to get done and outcomes that they want to achieve. So what I call their selfish desires. And so when you understand this, what you start to see is you start looking at your customers beyond demographics and psychographics and you start thinking about like, well, what is it they're actually trying to achieve? So I'll use my husband as an example. He is a massive Cleveland Browns fan, right? Like Cleveland Browns is not a particularly um, successful team in the last 20 decades, you know, two decades that he's been three, I guess, probably. He's liked them since he was a teenager, so a long time. The reason that he picked them is because his basketball coach was a fan of the um, their rival team, the Steelers. And so he's like, well, I've got to go against the right. I've got to pick the rival. So he's been stuck with that decision for three decades. But when you understand him as a person, you start to think beyond kind of like what he looks like demographically in his purchase history. And yes, he buys a lot of stuff, but you start to understand him more as a human being. He is an extreme extrovert and he loves interacting with people. He's very fascinated with people. He loves to be kind of like the, the clown, the one that's making everybody laugh and have a good time. And when he wears his jersey, it's a signal to other people that they can talk to him about sports. And when he sees people wearing other jerseys, he talks to them about sports and he'll make comments to strangers because that's the kind of person he is. He wants to talk to a guy standing in the bathroom lineup waiting at like, you know, the movie theater about how their receiver injured himself. And like, you know, you really screwed up my my fantasy. But like for him, beyond it gives him a like you know that jersey represents an opportunity to have a social interaction with somebody and to have kind of like this richer experience right it gives him a talking point to interact with a stranger for me i would never wear a jersey for that reason i would be like i do not need to be i don't want to be engaged in conversations with strangers i'm a big introvert right Um, 
But for him, so when you start thinking about it that way, it's like, okay, so like these are the types of people who are seeking social connection with with other people and they're using this as a lever to allow them to connect. Like when he goes to another city, he always wears his jersey. And again, it's like this opportunity to we can go to a bar and he'll find somebody wearing some type of sport clothing and he'll be able to start talking to them about it. And so when you start to think about that, it's like, well, how do we give them more of that? Right. So maybe there would be an opportunity to create fan apps. But I'm sure these exist where fans can interact with each other and like razz yeah. each other and pick on each other. Like that's what fantasy football is. It's this opportunity for friends to poke fun at each other and like, you know, have 100%. those moments of camaraderie. And when you start to think about the why behind the buy, it can tr- really, if you're creative, it can like, you know, jump off to all of these other ideas for how to give fans more of that. Right. And then how do you get like a really custom jersey that nobody else can have? Because what a cool talking point that would be, especially if other people know that there's only this one or these 100 that have been put out. Right. So like you start to think about these ways, like how do I give our fans more leverage, social leverage? Because like as animals, which is what we are, there's really three reasons why we do things. Right. We do things for like to thrive and we want to thrive financially, socially, and health-wise. Like all of our goals come down to the kind of like those three buckets. We want to be healthy, wealthy, and attractive to other people socially. Like, and when you start to kind of like extrapolate down into what that means for your brand, you can find new ways to deliver experiences that kind of hit those buckets. I love it. That's such an actual way to look at the why behind the buy. Um, All right. One or two more questions before we get out of here. Are there any opinions that you've heard lately in this space around customer psychology, why people buy, journey maps, any opinions in this area of expertise of yours that you really just flat out disagree with and maybe a little bit of insight into why? I would say that the thing that I don't necessarily flat out disagree with, but I think it's often misunderstood, is I think that people think that they make decisions rationally. And if you spend any amount of time studying human behavior, what you realize is we are very predictably irrational, right? We don't do things for rational reasons. So when you design systems, solutions, and products for rational people, and you assume that they'll interact with them in the way that is most rational, you're often very surprised by what ends up happening in the real world. So I guess my advice would be as you, when you, when something doesn't work the way that you expect, pull back a layer, talk to customers, try to understand like, they didn't, like, you know, people said that they wanted this and we gave them this and then they didn't want it. Like, what what went on there? Like, you need to kind of, like, get the layers deeper because oftentimes what people, what you believe to be the the right way that people might go about doing things, the way that they act in the real world are just different. So we do, it comes to save, from saving money to cheating on our diets. Like, to, like, so I would just say, don't assume your audience is rational. And I think your your type of listeners they probably are more in tune with that. But especially in the B2B world, people assume that if you're selling enterprise software that like and to big executives, like they're making these decisions, they're very like rational decisions. Like oftentimes it's like, well, shit, like I haven't delivered any of my metrics in the last month and I've got to have a win to be able to report at the next meeting. Mm-hmm. So I might as well sign up for this new software so I can say I did something in the last month. <laughs> like that's what's actually going on. Too like, so, you know, so understand what's really happening. Kind of, again, the why behind the buy. And the way you do that is by talking to people, because these are not things that you can just ask them in a survey 
And, you know, you can observe things, but then you need to ask them what happened, right? Like what was going on behind that? Because again, like you can watch people walking out with the milkshake in their hand, but unless you ask them, why'd you buy the milkshake at 8 a.m., you're not going to understand why. So you got to be able to have real in-depth conversations with people to get some of these great insights. I love it. I think that's a perfect place to close us. Caitlin, where can people reach you, follow along your journey, get some of these actionable products that you've created with Customer Camp? Um, give us the details on where people can find you. Yeah. So the best place to find me, I'm super active on Twitter. I'm um, at Kate Bohr. So K-A-T-E-B-O-U-R. And then you can find me on my website at customercamp.co, not .com, to my chagrin. <laughs> this is great. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, to everybody listening, thanks so much for tuning in. Caitlin, we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me, David. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.